Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. It is an actual Monday Madness. Haven't had one of these in a while. We've been bouncing them around the week. I'm Nathan Baird along with Doug Lamarice. It's our usual way to kick off the week. Bit of a, a strange week in the world of starting off a strange week or maybe ending a, the previous strange week in the uh, entertainment world. We're going to talk about that later on in this podcast, but it is still football season here in Columbus. And the NFL draft is coming up, and that's going to be a big focus of what we talk about today. Ohio State had its pro day last week. This is the first time Doug and I have had a chance to talk on the pod since that. Stephen and I did a breakdown the next day of what Ohio State guys we thought helped themselves and, and the, you know, the impressive performances and what they might mean as it relates to NFL draft standing. But, Doug, as you looked at those results and what it might mean for Ohio State players, is there anything that stood out to you as we start to th- – get even closer to getting some certainty on where some of these players might fall. Yeah. I mean, Garrett thought he helped himself, right? The Garrett was a little better. I thought that kind of, cause that can even make the difference of the battle. He's probably in a battle with Drake London to be the first receiver off the board. And while the Browns still had a first round pick, I was sort of half joking, sort of half not joking of, Hey, if you want to see if you're a Browns fan and Ohio state fan, root for Garrett Wilson to not put up the greatest testing numbers of all time. And I thought he was, I had written something when I was doing Brown's mock drafts of, I thought Garrett Wilson had almost like the ideal combine to make him a Brown that he didn't set the world on fire, but he certainly didn't put up any red flags. So I thought he still made sense for the Browns at 13. And then obviously the Browns traded their first round pick and he's not going to be a Cleveland Brown. Uh, Then I thought, maybe what he did at pro day maybe made it a little more difficult for him to get to 13. And I'm trying to look at the betting lines now. I'll see if I can find one first receiver off the board, Garrett Wilson versus Drake London or anybody else. But I, I think tiny little things when you're drafting elite players, Hey, this guy's elite and this guy's elite. It's not a either, or it's a both. So how do you decide? Well, Drake London's always going to be bigger. So then what can Garrett give you? What can Garrett Wilson give a team? And I thought maybe some of what he did at his pro day 
maybe help some teams say, oh, no, no, yeah, he's our number one receiver. Yeah, Drake London, quite a bit bigger. 6'4", 219 is the listing I'm seeing on him here. So if, if yeah. size is your priority at that position for whatever reason, either in general or because of how you think it fits with your roster right now, Drake London might be the guy that you lean to. I think it's hard to look at either of those guys and say necessarily that you're making a, a wrong decision. Here's what Garrett Wilson said of his pro day performance. I'm sorry, of his combine performance. Quote, I was a little sloppy and nervous in Indy. I was doing some uncharacteristic things going through the drills. I wanted to show what I really bring to the table and what I can do route running wise. And I kind of wondered after Wilson and Olave had done so much in Indianapolis, I didn't know for sure how much they were actually going to do at pro day. So they didn't um, run new forties. There were some things that they'd already done that they didn't feel the need to do again because they had, you know, put up fine times there. But it is when you look back on it, you know, Alave had a combine that like launched him up a draft board. I guess launch is probably not a great word because he was already going to be a first round pick, but maybe helped him sort of resettle his place in the wide receiver pecking order, moved him up from being the fourth or fifth receiver off the board to people wondering if he should be the second receiver off the board, that sort of thing, uh, or third. And Wilson didn't really have that sort of movement. It was more just like, okay, we. Maybe he reinforced some things that people already knew. And it will be interesting to see whether this extra day in front of scouts and GMs and coaches at the Woody makes that difference. If, if you know, when, when teams talk about him after draft day, after the first day of the draft, April 28th, will they say, oh, well, it was when we saw him in Ohio, at Ohio State that he showed us something else or we, you know, it helped helped clear something up in our minds. I do think one of the other things that's coming into play for both these guys is who's looking at receivers and we can get into this with both of them, but the fact that arguably the two best quarterbacks in the league lost their number one receivers this off season, yeah. I think has upped the ante a bit for Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave with Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay losing Devontae Adams. And then obviously just a couple days ago, Tyreek Hill getting traded by Kansas City. Both those teams need guys for their dudes. And I think it's possible. It's all this stuff, Nathan, you, you know, for all these Ohio State guys, you certainly wish them the best of luck. You want them to go as high in the draft as possible so they can make as much money. But there's a chance, I think, that both Wilson and Olave are going to wind up right in the range where they go to good teams and make instant impacts and are in the playoffs next year and do – now, listen, we didn't know the Bengals were going to be that good, but, you know, Jamar Chase didn't just have a great season. He helped his team get to the AFC Championship game. You want to go to a quarterback, and I could see both these guys, and the reason I'm mentioning it is, every, you know, I, I like mock drafts. Some people think it's silly, but I think it's fun. It's just a way to think about things. I just found one just tooling around Monday morning on CBS Sports. The Chiefs, when they made the trade of Tyreek Hill to Miami, got Miami's like third first round pick. So they're picking like 28 and 29, I think it is. Garrett Wilson's not last until 28 or 29. But this mock draft had the Chiefs packaging their two first round picks to move up to 10 to get Garrett Wilson. Hmm. And it's that kind of thing. It's made up. But. If you're the Chiefs and you're looking for a dynamic receiver, 
to come in and fill the Tyree kill role. I think they have to, they have to draft a receiver. I know that they signed Marquez Valdez Scantling, I think, but like, that's not enough. They have to draft the receiver. Jamison Williams on pure speed is probably the guy. And that might be a fit there. Actually, if they don't want to go all the way up to get somebody like Garrett Wilson, I, I could see Jamison Williams falling or lasting until the twenties. And then maybe the chiefs make a small move to go up and get him. Garrett Wilson's not as fast as Tyreek Hill. Tyreek Hill's a lightning bolt, but dynamic, get the ball in his hands and watch him explode. The kind of routes that Tyreek Hill ran, stuff across the middle, yards after the catch. I mean, I think a lot of what Garrett Wilson does would fit the Chiefs. So now you just have some really good teams with receiver needs who might have reasons, Nathan, to go get them. And I always love it when teams go get guys. Like, go get your guy. And you can't, as an organization, you can't go too crazy trading up all the time and giving up future picks to trade up, trade up, trade up. Actually, a lot of the best franchises trade down and mm-hmm. accumulate picks but for the player when you're the player and the organization trades up to get you i think that fuels something i don't think it puts more pressure on it it's like yo they didn't want a guy they wanted this guy so in this fake little mock draft the idea of the chiefs trading up to 10 to get garrett wilson gets my juices flowing so i'm glad you put that qualifier on it because when you first said it I was actually going to maybe disagree that I don't, I think Garrett Wilson might still be too high to be drafted by a team. That's definitely a playoff caliber team as early as next year. Um, There's a, something called NFL mock draft database that collects a lot of the mock drafts and um, sort of gives you a, an aggregated result for them. And it's not a perfect system on, on the, the mock draft side of it, because if somebody doesn't have a consensus, they just leave them off. But there, you know, that right now is mocking Garrett Wilson using the number 13 pick that Houston traded to Cleveland. The Texans using that to take Garrett Wilson. I think everyone thinks the Texans are probably not on the cusp of the playoffs. Might depend on how good Davis Mills turns out to be, whether that's something that could happen quickly. But that would probably be a little bit of a, a heartbreaker for you to watch the Texans use the number 13 pick to take Garrett Wilson. But I definitely think it's true of Chris Olave and the range he's getting. St- mocked in still like maybe like 18 20 somewhere like in there on down then you are talking about teams that either already were in the playoffs last year or right on the cusp of just based on their their normal draft order yes there have been some changes some trades and things that have, have jostled that around a little bit but he seems like a guy who definitely or to use the example like the chiefs someone like that that has two first round picks late using one of them or both to you wouldn't have to move all the way up to 10. You could move up just to like 20 and still get someone as good as Chris Olave. So the thing with Garrett Wilson, if Garrett Wilson doesn't go to like a playoff caliber team right now, if he goes to Houston or say he goes to Atlanta at eight, Atlanta's sort of revamping mm-hmm. its offense. Now losing Matt Ryan, Calvin Ridley suspended. They still have Kyle Pitts. Depending what how bad the team is he goes to, then a career with CJ Stroud comes into play. And it's like Garrett, tread water. CJ is a coming. Just relax, do the best that you can. Davis Mills is not the long-term answer in Houston. Marcus Mariota is not the long-term answer in Atlanta. Chill out. Your team is kind of stinking this year and setting up for this quarterback draft in 2023. So if if Garrett Wilson goes to a team that's not win now, keep that in mind. 
Chris Olave, the two places that make a boatload of sense for Chris Olave. Well, I guess there's three. Well, there's probably four. The two that are on my mind, if he gets that far, are back-to-back New England at 21 and Green Bay at 22. And there's a guy that I follow on Twitter who covers the Patriots for a TV station up there. And he does a really good job of finding draft picks and writing and talking about them. Guys who fit the Patriots, what they've looked for traditionally, certain skill sets, certain position, their backgrounds, what schools they played at, that kind of thing. And the idea of Chris Olave fitting the Patriots and Mac Jones needing a number one receiver and Bill Belichick liking the kinds of things that Chris Olave does, that makes a lot of sense to me. And then Chris Olave dropping in as an absolute immediate, if not number one, co-number one threat for Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay, I think makes a ton of sense. They have to turn that Devontae Adams pick they got from Vegas at 22 into a receiver. And so I think Olave has a chance to wind up like in an ideal. I think if some people give him to Philly too. Philly has three picks, 15, 16, 19. They just took Devontae Smith last year. I think you mentioned they have Jalen Rager there already, but they add like one more receiver and then tell Jalen Hurst, let's go, man, here we go. And you give Chris Olave with Devontae Smith, maybe you have a chance to do something. But I think I think New England and Green Bay for Chris Olave would be fantastic. He's he handles himself like a pro. Let's go be a pro as a rookie and and roll it out there and, and put up big numbers for a winning team. Well, the the recent Aaron Rodgers soap opera aside, the other thing that both of those franchises have in common pains me as someone who grew up as a Bears fan to say this. Those are well-run franchises. Those are respected franchises that more or less have their stuff together. And well, especially in the case of New England, I don't think there's any argument. Like that's almost like the model NFL franchise in a lot of ways. I know Deflategate, Spygate, whatever. But still, teams that are just um, just continuously win and and have a plan to do it and execute it and and stay relevant year after year after year and and are at the top of their division. So I, I agree. I think those are both really intriguing potential landing spots for Olave. To go back to Wilson, there's sort of two things that I was that are in play there. One is the difference between being drafted by a place and the expectations are going to be high if you're a first round pick, but you get selected by new England or green Bay. Again, you're, you're the first round pick with high expectations. Who's being added into an already proven winning environment. And you're just supposed to help sort of be part of the thing that takes it up in a level. Whereas with the range where Garrett Wilson might be getting drafted, and, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, I said the Texans and you mentioned Atlanta, other teams up there like Washington drafting up there, certainly the Jets drafting up in that range. Like you're you have to now be the reason why this team gets good. You have to help like you're, you need to be the answer. You need to kind of come in and lift things. And that's a it's a different ask of players. So um, I don't know which of those two scenarios I would prefer as an athlete. But you're also talking about some some financial differences between those two spots as well. Davis Mills actually with Houston wasn't that bad last year. He he had a better first year than Justin Fields did, I would argue. Um, and not necessarily because he's on a better team, certainly, because there's a reason that the Texans are, are drafting as high as they did. So 
because they, they've got the number three overall pick in addition to that number 13 that they got from the Browns. So the, he might be all right. I just don't know if they think he's going to be it, 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 they're in a situation where if they're drafting in the top five again a year from now, they're going to have to look at a, a quarterback at that spot. But Atlanta, certainly, that seems they seem to be almost on the long con here. Like you can take someone like Garrett Wilson there, pair him with Kyle Pitts, pair him with Ridley when you get him back from suspension. And then now you're still going to stink next year, but you take a quarterback next year and all of a sudden maybe you've you really have like launched yourself a little bit. Yeah, the other team that I maybe like for Garrett Wilson is the New York Giants. They have two picks in the top 10. They have uh, five and seven. And Brian Dable, the new head coach there, is like a really good offensive mind. He led the Buffalo Bills offensive resurgence with resurgence with Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs as the offensive coordinator there. I don't think Daniel Jones is the answer long term there, but Brian Dable knows how to call an offense and knows how to put a passing game in position to succeed. And I think the idea of getting Garrett Wilson and then they moderately tank and are in position for Bryce Young or CJ Stroud next year, I think is possible because you're not going to hire Brian Dable and then like not get him a quarterback. That doesn't make any sense. You have to give the guy the tools to be what he was in Buffalo. And some people thought they'd be in the Mitch Trubisky running. That didn't work out, but I think they're going to try Daniel Jones one more year. And I don't think Daniel Jones is good enough. And so, you know, like Zach Wilson, I, I'm not a huge believer in Zach Wilson with the jets, but they're going to stick with him. So if Garrett Wilson goes to the jets and Zach Wilson, isn't quite what you think he is as a number two overall pick, but they've got to let that play out for at least four years. And Garrett Wilson is there for two years, two, three, and four of Zach Wilson being like, well, it was good this week. I wasn't that good the next week. That would that could be rough. Now, if you believe in Zach Wilson, great. It's like I'm all for the draft quarterback, but I'm all I'm already out on the guy who was the number two pick last year. But I didn't love that pick anyway. So that would maybe make me that's probably the team that makes me the most nervous for Garrett Wilson, other than teams like Houston, just seems like a they have this whole weird front office staff in there that a lot of people in the NFL don't have a lot of faith in. I wouldn't love Houston for him. I wouldn't love the Jets for him. But I think there's other places where you have a chance to either help a team win right now or be set up as the number one weapon for a team that's going to draft a quarterback high next year. Those are still the only two Ohio State players that are being mocked into the first round by any in any wide way. I don't think anybody else had a pro day that quite pushed them up into that conversation. That next group of guys that would maybe be talked about, Nicholas Petit, Frere, Tyreek Smith, maybe the most likely next two guys off the board. The guy who didn't get to work out at pro day and we thought he was going to because that's why he didn't work out at the combine. He was sort of pushing things back was Jeremy Ruckert. Talked to him very briefly after pro day just to kind of try to gauge what he is going to be able to do before the draft. He said he doesn't know. I just get very frustrated vibe from him, understandably, that he isn't getting to do all these workouts. So his chances of like, it made me think of it when you're mentioning the Giants, because I I was, as I was waiting to talk to a record, he was having a long conversation with a guy from the Giants who's, you know, that's sort of his, one of his two hometown teams being from uh, Long Island. Although I think he's actually more of a Jets fan. I think he grew up more of a Jets fan, if I remember him saying at the Combine, but not going to get to probably make the climb he could have and separate from that group, but um, we'll see. Big mishmash of tight ends. And it is unfortunate 
because he's a guy that doesn't have a ton of film catch and passes. It was like, Oh, if he can get out and run routes and do individual workouts for teams and go visit and just show them like, man, look how athletic I am. Look at me running a route and making a cut, making a play on the ball in the air. I do feel like he's a guy who maybe needed that more than a guy like Charlie Kolar, who had 75 catches a year or whatever at Iowa state or Trey McBride. It was the number one option in Colorado state's offense. So I feel bad for Ruckert. He's not going to leave the mishmash. He's just not, he's going to have a hard time climbing in the mishmash, which I think we all believe he had a chance to do had he been able to put on a show this offseason with his athleticism, with his catching ability, and then you go back to his film and how far he came as a blocker. So, you know, again, we had some people mocking Ruckert to the Browns in the third round and, you know, early on with some stuff. I just – I think there might be some guys who just put some stuff down that I, I don't know. We'll do a thing. We I think we've done it every year, right, where we're going to – do a podcast where we go through and we, we like have the draft and we say who rings in first to get Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave and Jeremy Rucker. So I'll be curious to see where we think Jeremy Rucker goes. I think I might have him like more in the fourth round now than the third round, just because there is this big group of tight ends who are so similar in so many ways. Yeah, I, I agree with you that I don't think it's he's he's plummeting by any means. I don't think he's he's hurt himself, but he just hasn't had the opportunity to help himself, yeah. which again, just just from the brief conversation I had with him, you could you could sort of sense that frustration, and that's understandable. Maybe that's something he can use as he gets going here in the NFL. Anybody else you want to talk about from the Ohio State side? We, Steve and I already talked about some of the funner yeah. things, you know, the Master Teague things and the C.J. Stroud things from Pro Day. So I, I was very busy last week. I didn't actually uh, get a chance to listen to the pod. Just give me your 30-second Master Teague take because he looks like he's cut out of granite. He runs as fast as the Flash. He lifts as much weight as the Hulk, but he didn't get invited to the Combine. Were, were, were you guys blown away by Master Teague? Or what was your vibe? I don't know if blown away is the correct way to say it. It's a guy who clearly, I mean, this is his leg to stand on, right? That he's a physical specimen and reliable backup running back too, but it, it, clearly a physical specimen who should test well and showed up and tested really, really well. So I kind of see, I think his base case scenario might still be similar to what Justin Hilliard got last year. If people remember, Justin Hilliard did not get drafted. I think also did not have a combine invite, if I remember correctly. But um, because they didn't have the combine last year, but they had like sort of what was going to be the virtual combine. I don't remember if he was going to be invited to that or not. But um Went undrafted, but then got a, if you think, it's kind of the NFL version of, of a preferred walk-on. You were like a priority free agent signing after the draft. He got like a $30,000 signing bonus and a $95,000 guaranteed contract. Could could Master Teague's physical performance have pushed him into that conversation? I think it's possible. Mike Weber was a seventh-round pick in 2019, and I just never thought, Mike Weber really quite had enough to be an NFL running back, even though he sort of shared the load at Ohio state with the guy for a season who wound up being a second round NFL running back. I just thought JK Dobbins had a lot of things that Mike Weber didn't have. I think master Teague has some things that Mike Weber didn't have. So I could maybe see him going in the seventh round, like a roll of the dice. Uh, 
athletic kind of upside. I also think Master Teague just might have a future as like an American Ninja Warrior or something. Definitely do it with your shirt off. Sometimes the American Ninja, you got to have kind of a shtick on American Ninja Warrior. And I like American Ninja Warrior. So you have like, sometimes you have the gymnasts on there who have the incredible strength to, in their upper body to just lift themselves on the ropes and the flexibility to spin. Gymnasts on there, great. Oh, the gymnasts, woo. Then you'll have like a, you know, a, a, a carpenter who like you're doing a physical thing all day and you just develop these muscles. You don't even realize them. And then the guy comes out and does it in work boots and jeans and he's got a whole thing and he's Steve the carpenter and everybody loves that guy. And that guy tears it up. I, I've got Master Teague's PR thing ready to roll for American Ninja Warrior tomorrow. And I would put him on the commercials all the time. He would be like, can I wear a shirt for this? He'd be like, no. If you're going to come on, you <laughs> cannot wear a shirt. And so then you then you show a couple of his football highlights, right? You do that. He's got a great name for it. He's a humble, good dude. And then you just let him rip. Now, he's probably got to drop a little weight for the American, American Ninja Warrior course because there is you're lifting your body weight up a lot. You're swinging. He's probably got to drop a little bit of weight for that. But the thing of it is, is if football – I don't know what this – if football – was you didn't have to turn sideways at all ever when you had the ball. He's good. He's good to go. It's just that but he's fast and he's strong, but you have to be able to cut. And so he is who he is. We know who he is as a football player. There's not a ton that makes me think that Master Teague is going to make it as an NFL football player because I just think he has some things like overflowing and then some other things he doesn't have enough of. But that guy's enough of an athlete that I think he should be able to do something with his athleticism. I just, I just don't know that it's the NFL. And so good. Like he could, I I don't even know what, could it be a bobsled guy? You know, like didn't Herschel Walker do bobsled? He Hmm. looks a little bit like Herschel Walker, right? It's just, or I'm trying to figure out the next step for master T because he works his butt off. You know he got himself in peak shape for this. He rehabbed from that injury and came back from that Achilles. And, like, everybody loves him. So let's – if anyone has ideas, I think he's enough of an athlete to do something athletic at a high level. I just don't know that it's playing in the NFL. I think you might be right that there's going to be some avenue out there for him if he wants it. I do think, though, he's going to get – it's going to be after he takes multiple looks at some kind of pro football. You got the USFL reviving, coming back now. You've got, um, as I was standing talking to his father after Pro Day, the guy from the XFL comes up and says, like, hey, I don't know what those guys are telling you, but don't forget about us. Like, they were obviously pretty impressed because that's, a you know, maybe a level of athlete that they don't necessarily always get access to, at least not right away. But anybody who gets to that level is probably getting filtered through some kind of NFL opportunity. So, I would expect Master Teague to get some kind of look from the NFL. Is is he a guy that could stay there in terms of a special teams role too? I don't know. Guys have gone there and made long careers by just or you know several years hanging around on a, in a special teams capacity. Maybe we'll see. Speaking of the Texans, who we talked about before, they did have a long talk. Uh, Levy Smith did off to the side, sit down, have a long one-on-one talk with Tyreek Smith. He's still someone that intrigues me as to what his draft. Um, status might be just because he 
did at times last year flash so much. He seemed pretty happy with how he tested. He's maybe the one guy that I wonder if, if I had to pick uh, Ohio State player that goes higher than we expected, even though it's a pretty deep draft for edge rushers, it might be him. I think that's quite possible that again, you just need somebody to fall in love with you. And if somebody thinks, Hey, like we've found something with this guy, we see something on the film that maybe other people didn't see. Um, I could see that. And it is, it's one of those things that I, and I never know how this works. I certainly have not dug into the research on it. Do you want to be in a deep class at your position or a weak class? Because sometimes it's like, oh, the class is weak, so you'll go higher because if people need that thing, there aren't as many people in your way. But then I also think there can be a thing where people get really interested in a position group, and if they just miss on the guy that they kind of wanted, but then they're like, well, we like this guy too. We better, let's get him. We're like in a, we're in an edge rusher frame of mind in the third round, and we thought we'd take Eric but instead we'll take Tyreek and we'll be just as happy as opposed to like, ah, man, there's nobody worth taking at that position in the third round, you know? So I, I think he could benefit from sort of being in that group of second tier. We know what the first tier is, but I think he's in the second tier, maybe the bottom of the second tier, but there's a guy, Josh Pascal is a guy who I keep mocking to the Browns in the third round. He was a two-time captain at Kentucky tested pretty well. Like I sort of have it in my head that I think the Browns probably need an edge rusher. And I only reference the Browns because that's the NFL team that I spend time on. But if the Browns are sort of sort of think they need an edge rusher, like to, to at least play a little bit right away. And it's like they if Josh Pascal's not there at pick 99, then or or pick the one before that, they have two picks in their third round, third round. Then I'm kind of like, well, like maybe Tyreek Smith, like in my head, Tyreek Smith would make sense there that he's not the first guy on the list that I have for them at that spot at that position, but he'd be maybe the next guy or the next, next guy. And I think that's the kind of thing that could happen. And here we are. Tyreek Smith goes higher in the third round than maybe we envisioned. Your buddy DeMario ran a four, five, three 40 at the combine. Do you think the Browns should trade back up into the first round to get him or wait and hope he falls to the second? Can Demario play special teams? I think so. In yeah. the NFL? Yeah, maybe. Like now it's he's, he's a little small. It's hard because like special teams in the NFL, it's like, well, who's your special teamer? It's like, well, it's our third receiver is our star special teamer. And like our nickel linebacker. It's they don't have a ton of guys who are, you know, you're not there only as a special teamer. You've got to be able to do something. So probably not. I mean, it's it's probably not. Even like, you know, like Dearness Johnson, for instance is the Browns third running back when they needed Dearness Johnson to go play. He had like a hundred yard rushing game this year. Like could master Teague be Dearness Johnson? Probably not. I don't think he can. And could Demario McCall be enough of a guy where we can put him in the secondary, you know, Richard LeCount's a guy who was like the seventh defensive back for the Browns last year was a guy that Ohio state recruited many moons ago and then went to Georgia. And it's like, could Demario McCall be Richard LeCount who wound up playing safety in the Packers game because the Browns had so many secondary injuries and, they like threw a touchdown pass to Devontae Adams over the middle of the field. And Richard Count was like standing there with his hands in the, in the air. Like, what am I supposed to do? And it's, could Demario McCall be that? It's like, no, he, he could not be that. So it's probably a little bit of a stretch, but Demario's here. It's the hard, it's hard. Nathan is master Teague a good athlete. Yes. Is Demario McCall a good athlete? Yes. Are they NFL level football players? No. Are they amazing? Are they amazing 
Have they trained their bodies? Were they, were they gifted with innate physical traits? Yes. Have they worked their butts off? Yes. But they're just, they're not, they're not quite there with the whole package, but man, I mean, you know, this, and I've always wondered sometimes these, these side football leagues that have popped up here and there over the past couple of years have not had that many Ohio state guys. And I've been surprised sometimes at how few Ohio state guys have been in there. Some have been, but maybe this is another crop of guys that can make, and that's, a, that's not like selling them short or being dismissive. That's like, Hey, this is real life. Go make some money playing football. Just not in the NFL. Yeah. The, the trickier thing is those leagues lasting more than whether Ohio state guys decide yeah. they want to go play in them. They, they tend to have a, a pretty short shelf life. We'll see how that goes. We're going to come back from the break. We're going to keep talking NFL draft. We want to talk about the big 10 and some perspective on how good this class is for the conference here on Buckeye Talk. So that mock draft database that I mentioned earlier, they have what they call their big board, which is just aggregating together all of very simply like who, who's getting draft, who's not trying to pick which team they go to, but just who's listed the highest on these mock drafts. And right now that database has seven big 10 players going in the first round. That, that big board has Aiden Hutchinson from Michigan, number one, Garrett Wilson, number 10, George Karloftis from Purdue, number 15, Tyler Linderbaum, the interior offensive lineman from Iowa, number 17, Chris Olave, number 20, David Ajabo, the edge rusher from Michigan at number 22, just got hurt. So we'll see if that affects his draft status. And then Michigan safety, Daxton Hill, number 31. And then three guys in the top uh, between 32 and 40, Jahan Dotson from Penn State, Michigan, uh, Minnesota's Boye Mafe, and uh, Penn State safety, Jaquan Brisker. So... Historically, I was looking back, 2021, last year, the Big Ten had seven first-rounders. 2020, it had five, but that was with the number two and three overall picks from Ohio State, um, Jeff Okuda and, and Chase Young. And 2019, also seven. So if they can get seven again in the first round, it's sort of keeping in with the recent historical norms for this conference. And it maybe could be, I think Dotson has an outside chance at mm-hmm. going in the first round. I think I saw the over-under for first-round receivers is five and a half and and it's the five obvious right Garrett Wilson Chris Olave Drake London Jamison Williams and Traylon Burks are the five guys that everyone is pretty sure is going to go in the first round so then if you think it'll go over the five and a half then I think the next two guys in some order are George Pickens from Georgia and Jahan Dotson so I think it's I think Jahan Dotson could sneak into the back of the first round maybe it's interesting Nathan to look at that there's always a thing with the with Big Ten draft picks and this kind of thing is how many are Ohio State, how many are non-Ohio State. So it's just like, oh, Ohio State had it's like, oh, great year for the Big Ten. They had this many first round picks. Like, well, yeah, but 75% of them were from Ohio State. It just so happened that Ohio State had a crazy year. I do think, again, as we look back on this, Ohio State losing to Michigan for the first time in forever. There's three Michigan defensive guys on that list. Yep. It's the two Ohio State receivers. And then three guys who were tasked with shutting down the Ohio State receivers. Two edge rushers to go get the quarterback before he can get the ball out. And then Daxton Hill, who's playing in the slot and playing some deep safety stuff. So as we look back on this, I'll be, you know, what matters, what happens next in the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry matters a lot. But there's a reason. It's not just snow. It's not just a couple guys had the flu. There's, there are football reasons that Michigan beat Ohio State. 
this year. And, and this NFL draft list really helps with it. I went through that same big board as well. I don't know. SEC 12 in the top 32. Big 10 7. ACC 6. Pac 12 4. Um, does that mean there's nobody from the Big 12? Because then I had three other guys. I guess there's nobody from the Big 12 in that top 32. Does that sound right? That is right. Let me take a quick look, but I think that might be right. It's like I, I made a list of all the conferences and I wrote nobody down on the Big 12. Can you imagine if there were no first round picks out of the Big 10? We'd be, this podcast would be on fire. I mean, listen, so, this, yeah, you got Liberty, Cincinnati, future Big 12, if you want to include Cincinnati, right. but they're not in the Big 12 right now. Utah, that's Pac 12. Um, I was trying to, Northern Iowa. Yeah, those <laughs> are the, the three list. others. Right. So, yeah, Texas AM, former Big 12. Yeah. So, so 12 in the SEC, Big Ten second at seven, leading this sort of, you know, second tier group is, is probably about where they should be. I do think, I think it's pretty decent talent for the Big Ten. We talked about it all year. You know, David Bell was a guy who be, people maybe thought would be a possible first round guy, did not test real well, won't go in the first round, might be a good NFL player, isn't going to be a first round pick. But these edge rushers, and it said Ojabo's uh, Achilles injury is going to maybe knock him down a little bit, but probably still should be a first-round pick. I think this is about right for the Big Ten. But there is there's a position that we have talked about in the past that I want to talk about a little bit before. But I do want to – like George Karloftis, we didn't see Tyler Linderbaum because Ohio State didn't play Iowa this year. He's a good interior offensive lineman. Some people get really excited about like really excited about that. It's fine. It's fine. But when you're drafting in the first round, like good interior offensive linemen are valuable. But when you're drafting in the first round, it's not just get the best player. It's get the best player that has the most impact on your team. And I just, for that guy to be a center, it's like, are you sure? Like, are you sure that there's not a corner or an edge rusher or a receiver? or a quarterback that's going to help you more, even if he's technically the better player, are you sure you can't get a facsimile of that in the fourth round and take the super impactful man-to-man cover corner right now? So sometimes I don't get as excited about guys like Tyler Linderbaum as some people in the Big Ten do. And just real quick on that point, that mock draft database, the team that they that they have selecting Linderbaum right now, I think makes a lot of sense in that context. It's the Ravens at number 14. So you got a team that is like based around the run, a team that's already pretty strong in a lot of other ways, especially on defense. And now could this is the kind of piece that specific to their attack might make them want him even more. They'd be willing to make that reach before other teams would. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Yeah, you got to go somewhere good that's got a bunch of other holes filled. George Karloftis at 15. I think he's 15, yeah. Um when I was at the combine and trying to sort of sniff around edge rushers a little bit with the Browns in mind, great, compelling story. Interesting dude compared to some of the other edge guys in this draft. I don't see it as much. I also wasn't huge on a just cause I think a is a little more, I mean, he's, he can cover and he can do some other things. I wonder about him maybe against a little bit against the run. I think Hutchinson's a complete end. Trayvon Walker from Georgia is a complete end. Jermaine Johnson from Florida State, I think, is a complete end. You know Karloff is a little bit. Like, is he going to be a great NFL player or is he lacking anywhere? Well, I think 
just the performance against Ohio State would suggest that he's lacking somewhere. I mean, if 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 Aiden Hutchinson went up against those same tackles and whatever the flu, I know, but like he went up against those same tackles and like ruined them a little bit, like broke the game a little bit. They're uh, Thayer Mumford and Nicholas Petit Frere's draft status is worse today because they played Aiden Hutchinson. And that was after they had combined to completely wipe out George Karloftis and make him a complete non-factor in that game. I mean, yes, the game control of that game also helped that Ohio state had, but I, so he's number 15 on the big board there. He's actually, the consensus has him going as high as like number seven on their mock draft consensus going to the Giants. I don't think that would be a great fit for him to put a guy like that in New York with all those expectations. I don't think that's a great fit. I think it would be better for him if he fell farther down the first round. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I agree. And I just, I, I just, I have, I have questions. I have questions about that. And I have, I have some questions about a job. I think Hutchinson's going to be the real deal. I think Linderbaum in his own way is going to be the real deal. I really do like Dax Hill. I think Dax Hill is a flexible guy who can move around the secondary a little bit. I think he'll be a good pick for somebody. And I'll be curious how these receivers shake out because for the big 10, which again, we all know has not been the greatest passing league in the world to have Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, Jahan Dotson, and David Bell in there at the same time is pretty stinking good. And, you know, we spent the last two years having some discussions about who should be first team, all big 10 kind of stuff, right? Like should David Bell be ahead of the Ohio state guys? And so here we are at the draft and the Ohio state guys who sometimes were behind David Bell on all big 10 are going to go significantly higher than David Bell in the NFL draft which doesn't mean they should have been ahead of him on the all big 10 team, but it's something they're, they're better. They're, they're better NFL receiver prospects than David Bell. Are they more productive? Are they more important to their offense? Maybe not, maybe not. I get it, but this will be, and I think it's okay to do this. It's like, I I do think about sort of NFL draft status when I think about all American teams and all and all conference teams not because I think the NFL where you get picked in the NFL draft is what's important but where you get picked in the NFL draft confirms your talent level which is what I'm trying to evaluate while you're still in college so the idea to me that are you kidding me Garrett Wilson's a top 15 pick how could David Bell be a better all big 10 choice than him they just didn't throw like that it's not just the stats. So I'm really curious to see what kind of player David Bell turns out to be. Cause I also think he could be one of these guys who did not test great. And then is a really good NFL receiver, but right now he's nowhere close to Olave and Wilson as a prospect. Yeah, I think that's fair. I would also say though, that I, I don't try to project that much though, when I'm filling out that ballot, cause it's, it, I don't, it's a lot of times you don't even necessarily know yet how some of that stuff is going to shake out. You don't know that David Bell is not going to test. You would guess David Bell is not going to test as well as Garrett Wilson, but you don't know how bad relative to that, that is he going to drop all the way out of the first round because he tests so bad. Is he going to be only a low first round pick? Like it's hard for me to take that into account necessarily when a guy has been that productive, it would be like a tiebreaker, but, but bell on his own. And you could, I guess you could make this, 
you could have made this argument about Jahan Dotson too, like productive enough on their own that they kind of stood on their own merits. It's it's tough. I mean, it, we, we've had that discussion. Just yeah, yeah. Because it's I mean, it's not it's not just about your merits. It's about like your merits in comparison to everyone else's merits. And then it's if it's just stats, it's like okay, well, you know, it's more than just stats. This year, Chris Olave, David Bell. First team all Big Ten by the coaches, Garrett Wilson and Jahan Dotson, second team. And so, you know, I, I guess that's fine. The uh the media had Jahan Dotson and David Bell first team, Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, second team. So I guess that's fine. But also, there's a guy who might go in the top 10 of the NFL draft and might be the first receiver off the board who wasn't even first team all, all conference in his own conference. And I think that's the argument that I made in the moment that I would have made in the moment. It's like, what are we doing? Like, we're just looking at stats and be like, well, sorry. Did he help his team win when he was on the field? Absolutely. Did he showcase his excellence? Absolutely. Did he get the ball as much as David Bell and Jahan Dotson, who were the clear number one receivers on their teams? No. But if we're just doing stats, because I can make an argument for just doing talent as much as just doing stats, but there's got to be some kind of mix. And on some level, it's a little crazy to me, Nathan, that Garrett Wilson is the favorite. And I, the latest odds I found is that he's moved past Drake London to be the favorite to be the first receiver off the board was second team, all big 10. And but, is that wrong? I guess it's not wrong, but right. It's going to feel crazy to me in five years if Garrett Wilson's Justin Jefferson. It's like, I remember when he was second team in his own conference. It's like, what are we doing? Yes, I understand. We also don't see the point totals. Was he one? Was there one vote difference? You know, I don't know. Your point still stands. If Jahan Dotson sneaks into the first round, though, that'll be three first round receivers for the Big Ten. Just to put that in um, context, those previous three years that I rattled off, 2021, 2020, and 2019, there was one non-Ohio State quarterback skill position player who went in the first round, and that was last year, Rashad Bateman uh, from Minnesota going in the first round. So it's rare to have any skill talent from the Big Ten other than Ohio State quarterbacks going in the first round in recent years, and this year there could be three. And I think that's an interesting step forward for this conference, potentially. They got to get more quarterbacks. They got to get another quarterback besides an Ohio State quarterback in the first round conversation. They've had some receiver talent, though. You can feel that coming a little bit mm -hmm. that when Minnesota was good in 2019 and had their greatest year ever, it was receiver fueled because it was like, oh, was Tanner Morgan great? As it turns out, no, he was okay, but he had Tyler Johnson, who I think was a was he a third round pick or a fifth round pick by I'm Tampa? Now. But he's like a real contributor. He's not a starter, but he's a real NFL receiver, no doubt about it. And they had Rashad Bateman, who then was a first round pick. Sure, fire first round pick. So that now you just got to get him. It's like, oh, well, Minnesota showed you guys how to do it. Why don't you just get a bunch of, go get a bunch of NFL receivers and then your team will be good? It's like, great. How do we do that? So, you know, I mean, Jahan Dotson, they've had good receivers at Penn State. And a lot of times there have been times when, you know, Chris Godwin really mattered, really mattered at Penn State. And that guy is got paid this offseason in the NFL. So Penn State at times has runs of Mike Kosecki, who's a tight end, but almost used like a 
receiver is a really good, is a very good NFL player was a really good tight end at Penn state. We can see that does match up a lot as much as Michigan. We're talking about how good their defense was. They were a little bit underwhelming at the skill positions for a team as good as they were, but it's because they were so defense heavy. They were so smart and effective in their run game. Hassan Haskins was such a tough guy. Blake Corum was a good compliment. We get all that. Ronnie Bell was their best receiver at Michigan. He got hurt this year, but you know, Donovan Peoples Jones was supposed to be that at Michigan. And he went through that time. He went through Michigan at a time when they didn't know what to do with a talented receiver, but maybe they'll figure it out a little bit. Why was, why did Indiana almost sort of beat Ohio state in 2020? It's because Ty Freifogel went nuts and they had that other guy too, right? I mean, not, not, not Ty Freifogel not going to be failure. What failure, but they had, they had some guys that you could throw the ball to. And is Michael, was Michael Penix awesome? I don't know. I'm really curious to see how Michael Penix does at Washington this year to get a read on him a little bit. Cause there might've been some prisoner of the moment, had some guys around him. I mean, when Indiana had Tevin Coleman at running back, whatever it was like 10 years ago, mm-hmm. it's like he ran for 2000 yards. And, and that year when in 2014, when the big 10 had so many good running backs, David Cobb at Minnesota, Melvin Gordon at Wisconsin, Ezekiel Elliott, all those guys. It's like, guess what? It made those teams better. So the big 10, it's not a coincidence when a team jumps up, they usually have some skill position guys. Saquon Barkley at Penn State. You knew that guy was something the minute he stepped on the field at Penn State. So they just have to, they have to find him. They have to find him. Tyler Linderbaum, good luck, my friend. I hope you have a 15-year NFL career and everybody in Iowa is proud of you and you make a gazillion dollars. But like centers are not the starting point for building teams that can beat Ohio state. You've got to have some skill position guys. And there have been moments when we've seen it, we just need to see it more through the rest of the conference. Tyler Johnson actually was a fifth round pick by the way. Fifth. Okay. Yeah. But it's also relevant because a year from now, we're going to be talking about is Ohio state going to have three skill position players drafted in the top X between Stroud and Jackson Smith, the Jigba and Trevion Henderson. And does anybody who else from the big 10 is being talked about in that same conversation? Well, not Trevion, not Trevion yet. Not Trevion. Oh, right, right. Not Trevion. Right. Right. But yeah, Jackson Smith and Jigba and CJ Stroud might both be top 10 picks. And then what's, what's the rest of the league going to do about that? How are they going to keep up? Right. But Trevian Henderson, the year after that, potentially followed, you know, joined by what other, you know, what other receiving talent Ohio State has at that point, possibly even added, joined by another quarterback, depending on how things are shaking out at that point. It just seems like Ohio State is is morphing into this era where, again, who's to say, projecting a couple years out, but very safe to assume you're going to have multiple contenders every year for skill position guys going in the top of the first round of the NFL draft. And I don't know. There, it, it's both that, and then we see on the fringes now other Big Ten teams that might be able to start having that conversation too. But they seem like they have a, a bigger jump to get there. And it's funny when you think about what the Big Twelve had been when the the run and gun Big Twelve that didn't play any defense and produced. You know, Corey when Corey Coleman was the number one receiver taken in the. Uh, 2016 NFL draft out of Baylor just because he put up gigantic numbers because Baylor chucked the ball around. Now we're at a position where there's no projected first round picks from the big 12, but the two best teams in the big 12 last year were defense first teams, Mm -hmm. Jim Knowles doing it for Oklahoma state 
and Dave Aranda as the head coach at Baylor, who got that job because he was such a great defensive coordinator at LSU and at Wisconsin before that. And then, by the way, what just happened in Oklahoma? They just replaced a quarterback guru with maybe the best defensive coach in college football, Brent Venables. So now, so that's a little bit of an opening, maybe. It's almost like the, well, mm -hmm. pen, write down, conferences, flipping identities. <laughs> Ask Jim Knowles about this, right? That the Big Ten, it's like, hey, there's a conference between the Big Ten and the Big 12 that has a chance to have, you know, four receivers taken in the top 50 picks. Which one is it? It's the Big Ten. It's not the Big 12. And that, hey, there's a conference that just stole a defensive coordinator from the other conference because they needed to fix their defense. Who stole who? The Big Ten stole from the Big 12 because the Big Ten was like, hey, we need to figure out how to play defense. Where should we look for that? It's like, I, Stillwater? It's like, what are you talking about? Don't they score 58 points a game? It's like, no, they have the best defense in the country. Because back in the day, guess what? Dave Aranda was awesome at Wisconsin and he left because LSU was like, we will give you $10 million because we're LSU. We have no idea how to play defense in the SEC. We have to go get a big 10 defensive coordinator. And now he's a Baylor head coach. So there's like, there's room here. Right. And Ryan day, hmm, Ryan day, still in the big 10 Lincoln Raleigh has left the big 12. Is it the final nail in the coffin of the big 10 stealing the big 12's identity? Because we talk a lot about, we've talked a lot about what Urban Meyer, this feels like an offseason project. We talked a lot about what Urban Meyer did when he arrived at Ohio State and changed how the Big Ten recruited. And it was no more gentlemen's agreement. It was flip until signing day. It was, there's no, no such thing as a commitment until the kid signs on the bottom line. You got to go national. All those things. A lot was made correctly of Urban Meyer and how he changed the Big Ten with his recruiting. Is it possible that Ryan Day is having a similar effect with his passing offense? Is it possible that Drew Aller and Jahan Dotson and Parker Washington and what Penn State's trying to do and is it possible that, listen, Michigan State, they could throw it around a little bit. They had some guys. Peyton Thorne's going to be a decent quarterback, I think, this year. Wisconsin has changed. It, you know, they, all the Graham Mertz discussions that we've had, the fact that Minnesota jumped up. Now, listen, they had recruited Rashad Bateman and Tyler Johnson before Ryan Day was the head coach and the offensive coordinator of Ohio State. So it's not like Ryan – but is the fact – the fact that the best team in the conference, the defining team in the conference, changed its identity and changed its style, has it forced the rest of the league to change in a way that is going to accelerate the talent level of Big Ten skill position guys, which will be reflected in the NFL draft, but also is going to be reflected on Saturdays in the fall and maybe has already been reflected Meanwhile, there's another conference that went the opposite way, which maybe opened the pool. Now it makes me want to look at the recruiting stuff. Open the pool. If you're a great receiver and you want the ball, where are you going? Like, uh, like, and you're in Texas. Oh, my head's exploding. 
this, I might be overstating this. I might be overstating this and compared to the urban recruiting influence, which everybody knew immediately and proved out. But I think there might be something here worth checking, Nathan. What do you think? Well, I, I, you might be overstating a little bit because I think what we're seeing right now in the Big 12 is something of a correction, a self-correction, because I don't think the Big Ten wants to steal the Big 12's identity because the Big 12's identity for the past several years has been, I don't care how many Heisman Trophy finalist quarterbacks you have in Oklahoma and how many points and yards you put up. When you get to the playoff, you're still getting stomped. Whereas at the Big Ten, I felt like if they got their team to the playoff, they felt that team could stand on two legs um, and, and, um, and, and hang on both sides of the ball. And the Big 12 couldn't. The Big 12 was deficient as a conference in a way that the Big 10 wasn't, even if the Big 10 didn't have the big the big offense quite the same way. Although with Ohio State, it still did. Because it's interesting because maybe the Baylor and Oklahoma State defensive rises were in were built to combat Oklahoma's offensive acumen and skill. But but Ohio State in 2021 had an Oklahoma year. It's like, give me a shorthand of what Ohio State's year was. Uh, Great offense, defense that wasn't good enough. Oh, you mean an Oklahoma year. Right. And then Oklahoma has just changed its identity completely. So Ohio State doesn't want to be Oklahoma, but it's coming off an Oklahoma year. But in the meantime, I don't know. Because it is. It's like, if you're playing a great offense, what do you do? If there's a great offense in your conference, what do you do? I mean, you got to do everything, but do you lean into defense to stop them or do you lean into offense to keep up with them? Because everybody is always reacting to Ohio State in the Big Ten, one way or the other. I agree with you, but I would push back a little bit on this idea that Oklahoma State getting a bunch of three-year guys and keeping them for five years is like a grand plan to stop Oklahoma's offense. It's not like they went out and and changed their recruiting philosophy at the top and started pulling in top 150 prospects on defense that came in and made big impacts as sophomores and got that thing going back in the right direction. Some of what happened at Oklahoma state last year, I think Jim Knowles, system is part of it, but it's also a system he'd been teaching to the same guys for four years at that point. And it just all sort of came together in a big way this past year. This is like a meeting. It's like a meeting. Sometimes I like it when our meetings and our podcasts are the same thing. Hey, you guys have any ideas for stuff? Let's talk it out. And then turn it into content. And I, I, or talk ourselves out of turning it into content. Or talk ourselves. Because this is what a meeting is like. Well, what about this? And it's like, well, yeah, but I don't know. Well, let's see. Okay. Is it worth the time? I don't know. Whatever. So this might require a little dipsy doodle. Because we could even, it's, it's one of those things. Sometimes you can get in trouble. I agree with you. You can get in trouble trying to take one year as a trend. I think your point about Oklahoma State, they might have just had a lot of veterans on defense and a guy who knew how to scheme it up with guys that he knew. And that led to this peak Oklahoma State defensive year. One year can get you in trouble. But if we try to compare the Big Ten now to the Big Ten blank number of years ago and the Big 12 now compared to the Big 12 blank number of years ago and say, this is how they played, this is what the stats were then versus now, over the last seven years as a, as a whole, has there been a trend? That could be something. And we could jump off of 2016 and this draft in a world where Corey Coleman went ahead of Michael Thomas, 
because Corey Coleman came from a big 12 chuck it all over the place offense. And Michael Thomas came from an Ohio state offense that ran the ball and ran the quarterback and didn't throw the receivers that much, but who's the better player. I mean, Michael Thomas is the better player than Corey Coleman every day of the week, but the styles of play in their programs and their conferences twisted things. And now look, now there's like, there's no big 12 receivers and there's a boatload of big 10 receivers. We could maybe look at the evolution of that and how it's related to defense, how it's related to skill position production and um, what it means for the future. That might be, but I do, you are right to not put too much on Oklahoma state was good at defense last year. And that means the conferences have changed identities because one year wouldn't make that true. Well, one year is a data point that you start following to see if there's a trend. Right now, I think there's a data point. I don't think there's a trend. I want to see what happens yeah. over three years. And same, same for some of the things that maybe are happening in the Big Ten. But like I said, what Ohio State's going to start doing consistently in the first round, some of the guys that are floating around there in the Big Ten now, especially as it relates to quarterbacks, let's see where things are two or three years down the line. Have they started putting more guys in that first-round quarterback conversation? But uh, again, something to follow. I don't, I don't, I'm not there yet. It's something that's just kind of my radar is up. So good meeting. We're going to come back from the break. We're going to talk about what you watch and what you eating here on Buckeye Talk. All right. A lot to say about what you're watching, but let's start off with what you're eating right now, Doug. So, uh, so I'll just uh, uh, I'll, I'll combine my a little tiny what you're watching thing with my what you eating, um, and then we'll get into the big what you're watching because we all were what you're watching the same thing. Okay. So I, I don't like talking about personal like family stuff on podcasts a lot because it's like it just drives me nuts. As as good of a podcaster as Bill Simmons is, and as um, he's basically built the whole model for how any of us do all this stuff. When he has his dad and his kid on to like talk about stuff, I'm like, what are you? No one's family is as interesting as they think their family is. Nobody cares what your dad thinks. No offense. So my daughter wrote a play. It was performed last week. Uh, she's going to go to college and try to major in, not try to, she's going to major in screenwriting. She wrote a, a 75 minute full length two act play. My younger daughter was one of the main roles in it because she tried out and she earned the part. She wasn't giving it to her. And it was like a remarkable thing to watch. So shout out to my daughter, who's a senior in high school and like wrote a whole play, which I blows my mind. So, That's but so my, so my family was here. My mom was here. My mom was in, I grew up in Pennsylvania and uh, to get my mom here, you know, her mobility is limited. I just go get her. They look like six and a half, seven hours. I go get her and I bring her and I take her home and I come back. So I was in my hometown briefly over the weekend because on Saturday I drove her home and then I turned around and drove back. But for dinner that night, I ate my pizza in my town, my East Coast pizza that I love. And it was such a glorious experience. And it's just one of these things where we've talked about pizza enough on this show. Tim Bielek, former Buckeye Talk uh, co-host, is my control group for this a little bit because Tim is from Ohio, grew up in Ohio. And when he went with uh, me and Landis to cover a Rutgers game one time, it was like, we were like, have you really ever had East coast pizza, triangle shaped pizza? And he was like, yeah, not really. So we went and ate it in New Jersey and he was like, Oh wow, this is really good. And Landis and I were from the East coast. We're like, yes, it is really good. It's better than square cut pizza from Ohio. It's it is. It's just, if you haven't, I just can't wrap my head around. I think it's like not subjective. It's objectively better. 
an East Coast, a New York style triangle cut little, you have to get it well, you have to say, I always say well done. So you get the cheese gets brown and bubbly on top. And then the crust is simultaneously chewy and crispy and a little floppy. And I just, I ate like a whole pizza and it was, I mean, it's like my death row food. I, I mean, the chance of me being on death row at some point, not zero. So I, I have to, like some people like, it's like a little game you play at a party. It's like, hey, if you, what would be your last meal? And it's like, for me, in the way that I operate, I got to keep it a little more realistic because it could happen. So it was just, it's, and I just get a cheese pizza and it was just brown and chewy and flavorful and simple. I ate two slices in the car while I was driving. My mom ate a slice in the car while we were driving. It's so good. You can't wait to get home to eat it. You have to eat it while you're driving. That's the test of a pizza. If you pick up a pizza and you don't eat any of it until you get home, I question how good that pizza is. So I could have eaten the whole pizza, but my mom was there. I didn't want to, I didn't want to like make her sad about what a pig her boy is. So I only ate two, but it was so, it was such a simple pleasure, Nathan. And I just want to have a Buckeye talk get together and bring 400 pizzas from my hometown and just have everybody have a slice. Because the thing about, like I always say, it's not that my pizza place is the best pizza place in the world. It's that there are 4,000 of those pizza places up and down the East Coast. It's just what normal pizza is. It's not spectacular. It's just normal. But the normal is so good. I just would have a hard time anybody being like, nope, Donato's is better. Like, what are you talking about? I don't think it's, it's like factually not true. And I know there are Donato's truthers out there and I get it. It's, but I think it's exposure. I think it's based on exposure. And so once again, I was exposed to it on Saturday and I gorged myself on it and it was glorious. What's the name of the place? Mr. Sorrento's in Hershey, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And it's across the street from the big hospital. And, uh, and I told my mom, this is the only thing that makes me wish I had become a doctor because I don't, I don't really like blood. I don't really like science or studying or thinking or helping people. <laughs> But if I could go across the street and get two slices from Mr. Sorrento's for every day, then I would do I would do gallbladder surgeries or whatever it is that doctors do at a hospital. Well, and it would also help to be that close to already work in the hospital when you're on a two slice of pizza a day diet for no decades. They're going to need it. Absolutely. I just will have like a defibrillator that like they could just hook me up, have one in my car. I always call it shotgun pizza. You have the pizza. The pizza's on the seat and the defibrillators on the floor (laughs) of the passenger seat. And it's a two for one combo. So last Sunday, uh, going back before that, my my best friend who actually was supposed to be in town this past weekend and and unfortunately couldn't make it for this, like, but we have a fancy baseball league that we've been in for a long time. And every year they get together in Chicago. We haven't done that for a few years. So he was going to come to town this past weekend and, uh, had something come up, but we've been the last couple of years, we've been meeting in Columbus to do our portion of the draft virtually. And I got to go to Wario's for the first time, which I think you went to for the first time a, a couple months ago. Cause usually in mm-hmm. conjunction with this draft, we usually do a, in, when, when it's in Chicago, we don't do a beer crawl. We do a beef crawl and we go to like three different Italian beef places. And uh, usually different ones every year. We rate our best ones, like who had the best Chardonnay and who had the best bread and all that stuff. 
So we haven't been able to do that for a while. It's been a big hole in our lives, and hopefully we can get back to it next year. But last year when he came to Columbus, I took him to Loops, which is a Chicago-style uh, like beef and sausage place here in Columbus. And this year I was going to take him to Wario's, but he couldn't make it. So my wife and I went instead. And I think Wario's is fantastic. And I'm going to, this is going to be an East Coast shout out too, because they are not a Chicago style place. They are like a Philly style place. And the thing they specialize in is the roast pork sandwich, which I had for the first time and mm. absolutely lived up to all of the, um, hype that I'd been hearing for years about how good the roast pork with the, I guess it's got provolone or something on it with the, the broccoli Rob on top. And it's, they're huge sandwiches. I mean, you got to pay like 16 bucks, but they're huge sandwiches. My wife and I could get by. We, we bought two, not knowing that and ended up eating for two days on them because they were so big and so glorious. So highly recommend Wario's it's down in the, uh, state the arena district, like right across yeah. from nationwide arena. And it's just like on the outside, it's just like a window. Yeah, now there's an inside you can go, but outside it's like a walk-up window, yeah. which is good. Yeah, I, I haven't had the pork there, but I've had the steak sandwiches there, and the bread's good, and the bread's really good. Yeah. And uh, and now we'll bring in Bill Landis for a 45-minute <laughs> head talk about bread, about how important bread is to a uh, steak sandwich or well, pork sandwich. So it was good stuff. The bread is usually important with Italian beef too, because you got to get it dipped. I get it dipped. I think that's and and I think that's more the Chicago traditional ways. You get it dipped, or you at least get you got to get that sauce, the 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 gravy going. And if, if you don't have strong bread, that's not going to hold up. But you also don't mm. want hard bread. It's got to be. It's got to have a consistency to it that it's not just going to like mush in your hands. But you also don't want it to be so hard you can't chew it. It's a it's a it's a tough bullseye to hit. Much like NFL draft prospects, you got to thread the needle on that. You want to be explosive, but not too small. You want to be big, but not too slow. And you got to get the sandwich bread just right. So speaking of things that are were roasted, mm. <laughs> were you watching the Oscars live last night, Sunday night? So my, I watched the beginning of it, and then my wife and I went downstairs to watch a show, and my kids were still watching it. And we were going to come up at the end for you know the big awards at the end. And our kids were like, come upstairs, come upstairs. <laughs> we we're like, what, what, what? And then we, so we, we saw it six minutes after it happened and had the same reaction of the, the whole world, which is a, is it real? And then B, oh my gosh. I could not help, but think about our recent conversation on the pod, you and me and Steven talking about, have you ever thrown a punch, taken a punch? And because I'm sitting there in a the moment and once you realize that it's not a gag, that he really did walk up and smack him across the face and then just go back and sit in his seat and think, oh, yeah, I, I can do that. I can get away with that. Um, like, but you realize it's real. You realize this physical confrontation just happened. And I'm thousands of miles away from it, really. It's just happening on my TV. But like my heart rate, like my heart was beating. I was like, oh, my God, like we just we're in the middle of this like confrontation right now. It's happening like millions of people are in the middle of this confrontation as it's playing out in front of us. So, again, just in case I can't imagine there's anybody, but we're talking oh, about I guess we should say what it was. Will Smith slapping Chris Rock on stage at the Oscars on Sunday night after Chris Rock uh, made an insulting joke about Jada Pinkett Smith. So I do. We I, my wife and I talk about this all the time, like when you wake up in the morning and you like you have a knot in your stomach and you're not sure why. And it's like, are my kids OK? Is there something with my job? Do we have a bill that we forgot to pay? 
did we have a fight that we forgot about? Like, what is it? And then you realize, you know, somebody on Game of Thrones got their head cut off and like you're still worried about it the next day. Mm-hmm. Or I was reading this book and there's a, I finished chapter six and like right at the end of chapter six, you know, somebody got kidnapped and I'm worried about them. And then you're like, why is pop culture giving me a knot in my stomach? This is not a way to live. But like I have a knot in my stomach right now as we record this at 11 o'clock. And I know exactly what it is. And it's that I it's that it's that it's and all I mean, everybody in the world is just doom scrolling Twitter. And there there's not two opinions. There's 50 opinions. Mm-hmm. And it's divided a gazillion different ways. And I would like to introduce another uh, buzzer here on Buckeye Talk, which we've talked about with Stephen. Sometimes if we get to have like a middle aged white guy stuff, we'll hit the buzzer. He can hit the buzzer on that. I'm going to hit this buzzer and I'm going to hit the no opinion buzzer. And I officially have no opinion on this because sometimes I think as much as I get on here and shout, my job is to shout stuff into a microphone. And occasionally to shout stuff into a computer with my fingers. But sometimes I don't want to have an opinion. So I don't have to have an opinion about this. And I don't have one. Because I agree and disagree with every other single opinion that I've seen out there. But the bottom line is, it gives me a knot in my stomach about the whole thing. Because I like Wills, I, I was like, oh, I like Will Smith. It's like, well, I like what I think I like of Will Smith. I like his movies. I like his persona. I like Chris Rock. I like his comedy. I like his persona. I like both of them. And I cannot believe this happened. And I'm just wondering how long this not my stomach's going to be here. Might be a bit. I think this this story is going to have some legs. I I, <laughs> I, I agree with you. I, I, you know, I made my Twitter jokes in the moment when it happened. Uh, so did a billion other people. And I will. This is what I want to say, though. The more I think about it, I'm not going to get in. I'm not going to take a stance on whether there's people who think Will Smith was completely justified. There are people who think it was a crime. I'm not going to walk into that fray. I will say if he had handled that differently, he could have destroyed Chris Rock in ways where he would not have been seeding the moral high ground here. Like if he had gone up, if he had stormed up to the stage and said, how dare you say that about my wife? And like pointed at her and said, do you know she has alopecia, which Chris Rock might not have known? Like, do you know she has a medical condition? Like he could have been confrontational in the moment, which still would have seemed like crossing a line. Or he could have waited until his acceptance speech, which he knew he was going to make. He was the clear front runner. He could have gone up there and said, before we get started and just gone into a whole thing and made Chris Rock look like a total dirtbag. But you see the high ground when you get up there and take that swing, I think. And, and so I understand why people would feel compelled to lash out. But I think if you handle it differently, you, you win the moment, you win the battle unequivocally. Yeah, yeah, right. That, that would have been a, a very advisable thing to do. But there's a million emotions going into this and that is not a justification, but it is not, it is no opinion. My well said, Nathan, I neither agree nor disagree with what you just said. (laughs) Here's my other, here's my other thing. You know, we've got a baby coming. So we're trying to arrange our, our budget in the coming months to fit the expenses that are coming with this baby. My wife and I, as we were actually watching the Oscars over at somebody's house last night, as we're driving home, we're like, all right, what would we pay? 
if Chris Rock printed out all the texts he received from every comedian he knows in the last night after that incident and everything that they were texting him, like Jerry Seinfeld, who, who knows who else is texting him? They're smart ass comments. Like I want him to print that out. Just, just Xerox doesn't even have to be like leather bound. I want that book of all the texts that he got last night. What would we pay for that? Cause I think it would be pretty hilarious. I did think, so there were a couple logistical things that I thought one is that I do think the Oscars are better served by having one host because the host implies is somebody's at the wheel. And so it's not that the three women who hosted last night, Regina Hall and Wanda Sykes and Amy Schumer didn't do a good job. It's that none of them were totally in control. And as people pointed out, if you had Billy Crystal or Jimmy Kimmel or, I think Tina Fey and Amy Poehler co-hosted one year, but even they felt like they were were Golden Globes. They were Golden Globes, but like somebody that just felt like, and then, cause then it used to be that the host would come out all the time. And now they've turned to this thing where they really just roll presenter, 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 Mm -hmm. presenter. And you went a long time without seeing any of the three hosts. I think if you had a host, you just, when, when they announced the wrong winner and Jimmy Kimmel was the host, Jimmy Kimmel kind of helped navigate that a little bit. I think they are better served by having someone drive the car. And I think they should learn from that. They also need to have a bigger stage. It was a weird logistical setup. The stage was like a foot high and the people were right on top of the stage. It shouldn't be that easy to get up on the stage. They tried to make it intimate. It shouldn't be that intimate because also I think it made the force of the joke hit harder. Because you're not, it's not, hey, I'm up on this stage. I'm just making jokes. It's like, I'm 10 feet from you and I'm only two feet higher than you. And I just made a joke about your wife's medical condition. It makes it feel more personal. So quit trying to be personal. It's a show. It's a freaking show. It's not somebody's living room. Get Get a host and get a stage. Just like every stinking high school in the country. Have a host and a stage. So I thought that was a problem. And then overall, the only, I mean, I think the saving grace of the Oscars was that licorice pizza didn't win squat because licorice pizza can get bent. It's a movie that includes neither licorice nor pizza, nor a plot. (laughs) Go jump in a lake licorice pizza. My God. I I just wanted to, you liked it. I did, but I, I'm I'm a Paul Thomas Anderson fan, but it's not my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie by by any stretch. It's a waterbed movie. What's this movie about? Oh, it's a coming of age tale in the seventies. Not really. It's mostly about waterbeds. Ridiculous. I, I, my God, as somebody, I, I would quibble with that. I, I think it is unfortunate. We watched Coda. We had already seen Power of the Dog. We watched Coda because we knew that was the other front runner. Yesterday afternoon, before we went over to our friends to watch. And I am um, not glad that it won because I think there were better films last year, but I'm disappointed that like all of this stuff is now overshadowing. Like I thought Coda, it's a movie that people should go see. It's a lot of fun. It's a, have you seen Coda? I literally, so it's only on Apple plus. Yeah. Yeah. And we just got Apple plus because somebody in our house got a new iPhone and then they're like, get Apple plus for free with your new iPhone. So I finally gave in and got it like two days ago. And uh, we have not watched Cody yet, but we're going to. But then I didn't even know what it was about. I thought it was about the part of the end of music 
where you get to the end of a piece of music and you repeat. Is that what it's about? Is it's, that also it, about that? That's the dual meaning. It's it's, oh, it's a, a dual it's, meaning. It's a oh. very it, music is a huge part of the plot. But CODA also is the acronym Child of Deaf Adult. Yeah, well, I figured that out yesterday, but then I just thought it was about a fishing boat. Yeah, uh, it's no, there's a fishing boat in it. It's you should watch it as a family. It's a great family movie. I don't think it was the best film of last year, but it's a great family movie. Uh, so that gets overshadowed. You know, Jessica Chastain, I thought was really good in Eyes of Tammy Faye. Um, that was a movie that I liked, I think, more than like the average critic liked. I thought Andrew Garfield was really good in it, too. Um, there were just some other a lot of other things that got overshadowed by this incident. I thought I thought King I'm like King Richard might have been the only movie that I saw the the 10 best picture nominees and I thought King Richard was awesome. So I thought I can't remember the actress's name who was nominated for best supporting who played Richard who played the mom or Ellis. Yeah. So she, I thought she was awesome in the movie and I thought they did a really good job with it. I, th- I thought it was a very entertaining family movie. And then I thought that uh, when you watched it, you thought, oh, I think Will Smith's going to win an Oscar for this. I think everybody thought that immediately. Right. But I, I thought it was deserved. It. I thought it was deserved. So um, it was one of those I kind of forgot. He was Will Smith watching the movie. I thought I was watching Richard Williams, which is always sort of what you're looking for. So I, I really liked that movie. And then that this is how it turned out is. Uh, unfortunate and i hope i'm gonna go eat pizza until the knot goes away mom can i have pizza till the knot in my stomach goes away or you just replace the tension knot with mm. a pizza knot that actually that sounds like actual like counseling advice what should i do eat eat until your stomach is so full there's no room for an emotional knot it's only a pizza knot Life lessons from Buckeye Talk. Yeah. Good luck, everybody. (laughs) We'll be back tomorrow afternoon. We are going to record after we have, uh, we watch Tuesday morning practice. We will talk to Ryan Day. I think we're also due to talk to um, assistant coaches again Tuesday. I think Knowles and Wilson. Knowles and Wilson Wilson again. Um, So we'll be back at it Tuesday afternoon. We'll have some rapid fire for you midweek. Keep coming back. For Doug Maurice, I'm Nathan Baird. That was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>